Wow, good morning, everybody. What a bunch of back row Baptists. It won't offend me if you move up a little bit. Hi, everybody. My name's Steve Pruitt. I got the privilege of sharing God's Word with you this morning. It is a high and holy honor, and I'm pretty excited about what we have to talk about today. But before we do that, in case any of you are relatively new to the church, and especially relatively new to the idea of Christians killing pumpkins (laughs) or killing anything, if you struggle with that in your heart... um, I want to give you some theological perspective on that. Think of it as T-H-P-P-P. Targeted Hillside Pumpkin Planting Program. We are spreading seeds where no seed has dared to go before. We're filling the earth. If you uh, need some notes, they're at the tables here. If you need a Bible, which today we're going to be uh, walking through a passage in Joshua 2 that um, won't be projected. You can get it on your app, or if you have your Bible with you, that's a good idea to bring your Bible to church. Um, Could you stand with me for the reading of God's Word, and we'll get going here. The Lord once said to Moses in Exodus chapter 33, verse 19, I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious, and I will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. You can be seated. I won't keep you hanging. Um, Most of us would say amen to that. God is gracious, God is merciful. Whew, good for me, you know. But when we see him extend his mercy to people that we don't think deserve it, people that are on a lower rung than we are in the righteousness scale, um, we can have a little bit of difficulty with that. When we see serial killers like a Ted Bundy or a Jeffrey Dahmer or somebody like that, and we hear that they have put their trust in Christ for salvation, we can have some mixed emotions about that. We might even secretly hope that God won't forgive them, that they really do get their due because what they did was so heinous and so worthy of death. But in our passage today, we're going to... um, learn in real time what God said in Isaiah chapter 55, that his thoughts are not like our thoughts and his ways are not like our ways. He shows his grace and mercy on whomever he wants and also on whomever he can. Rahab probably would have been one of those people you'd wonder about whether or not God could really save a woman like that, um, that he could maybe shed his grace on her. And yet, 
I also think that she'd probably be one of the ones that if mere humans wrote the Bible, if they were the actual author of the Bible, they would have left her story out because it doesn't really bode very well. Uh, and it kind of like seems like it maybe is polluting Israel just a little bit as it gets down into its history. But um, Rahab's story is mentioned four different times in four different passages, four different books in the Bible. Uh, in both the Old and the New Testament, it's mentioned in Joshua, here that we're here today, Matthew, Hebrews, and James. And one of the reasons I think that she's mentioned so many times is that in her story, God is revealing his character as a God of grace. And so today, as we look at Rahab, I'd like for us to think of this lady of the night as a poster girl for grace. And we'll get back to that as we go through the story. Her story begins just before that famous and amazing battle of Jericho where the walls come down and all that. It's in Joshua chapter 2 where Joshua is preparing to take his troops into Canaan to take over the land. Long before this, God had promised that land to Abraham uh, and now the time has finally come for him to fulfill that promise. The people in Canaan for hundreds of years now have been uh, increasing their wickedness and distancing themselves from anything that would remind them of the Creator God. They're into idolatry and wickedness and child sacrifice, and God has now come to a point where He considers their wickedness to be irreversible, and so He needs to judge them. The nation of Israel then is God's chosen instrument to be, they're chosen to be the, the human tool that God's going to use to wipe these people out before they contaminate God's people and the rest of the world. That's what's going on in Joshua 2. So Joshua and the Israelites come up to this city of Jericho where they face their very first challenge in the conquest of Canaan. They come to this military fortress city of Jericho. But before Joshua sends the whole company in and starts doing their stuff, he sends a few soldiers in as spies to check it out, just to get the lay of the land and figure it out. Joshua chapter 2, verse 1 begins the story. So if you're there, follow along. Then Joshua, son of Nun, secretly sent two spies from Shittim. Go look over the land, he said, especially Jericho. So they went and entered the house of a prostitute named Rahab and stayed there. Well, right away, a question comes up then, uh, and we can get kind of hung up on it. So let's get it out in the open. If Israel is on a righteous mission, and these guys are serving God, what are they doing going into the house of a prostitute? Doesn't that seem like just a little dicey? Well, it appears that Rahab is also an innkeeper. 
And so the spies are probably, given the benefit of the doubt, just looking for a place to stay. Some have tried to say that she was only an innkeeper since the Jewish historian Josephus uh, called her an innkeeper. But in both of the places where her name is mentioned in the New Testament, the word that is used to describe her is porne, which is Greek for prostitute, um, one who sells herself to others. Um, and it's the word from which, of course, we get our word pornography. So Rahab is both an innkeeper and a prostitute. She's running, you could say, a bed and benefits. <laughs> and in, uh, forgive me if that offends you, but it's, <laughs> read the story. Um, and in our human logic then, it sh she's a very unlikely candidate to be saved from God's judgment. And I think God chose her to make a point, to display something not about her, but about himself. And uh, we'll talk a little bit more about that later. Well, on the night that they show up in Jericho, somebody lets the king know that they're there, those spies. Evidently, the king had men stationed at the gate, and they recognized these guys as Israelites. So let's look at verses 2 and 3 where we pick this up. The king of Jericho was told, look, some of the Israelites have come here tonight to spy out the land. So the king of Jericho sent this message to Rahab. Bring out the men who came to you and entered your house because they have come to spy out the whole land. This is a direct order given to Rahab by the king himself, and she'd probably lose her life if she disobeyed. But look how she handles herself. Verses 4 through 7. But the woman had taken the two men and hidden them. She said, yes, the men came to me, but I did not know where they came from. Lie number one. At dusk, when it was time to close the city gate, the men left. Lie number two. I don't know which way they went. Lie number three, because they didn't go anywhere at this point. Go after them quickly. You may catch up with them. Lie number four. Now verse six. But she had taken them up to the roof and hidden them under the stalks of flax she had laid out on the roof. So the men set out in pursuit of the spies on the road that leads to the fords of the Jordan. And as soon as the pursuers had gone out, the gate was shut. Now, if she would have said to these guys, what spies? She would never have gotten away with it. She, they would have searched and they would have found those guys. But she's pretty smart. She admitted that they had been there because that had already been reported, and she says that they left already. That gets the soldiers all charged up for a hot pursuit. She sends them off in the wrong direction, and off they go. Now, another question comes up that you could ask here is, should she have lied? Should she have lied? And I don't know. But I do know 
that the Bible is clear that lying is wrong and God never congratulates her for actually lying. But then again, she's not condemned for it either. She ends up getting rewarded for the overall thing that she's done here. One thing that helps us a little bit is to know that this is wartime. And deception is a legitimate part of warfare. In fact, you can't win a war unless the enemy thinks you're doing one thing and you get them another thing. If they know what you're going to do and you say, all right, I'm about to aim my rifle at you and shoot you, they're going to duck. Warfare is built a lot on deception. And this is warfare. Another question is, well, why would she lie? What possible reason would she have to hide the enemy of her people from her own countrymen? Especially if she knew that that kind of an act would probably cost her her life. Why would she do it? Well, verses 8 and 11 give us a little bit of an insight into this. They tell us the beliefs behind Rahab's lie. Verse 8, before the spies lay down for the night, she went up on the roof and said to them, I know that the Lord has given this land to you and that a great fear of you has fallen on us so that all who live in this country are melting in fear because of you. We have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea for you. And when you came out of Egypt, uh, for you when you came out of Egypt, and what you did to Sihon and Og, the two kings of the Amorites east of the Jordan, whom you completely destroyed. When we heard of it, our hearts melted, and everyone's courage failed because of you. For the Lord your God is God in heaven above and earth below." The reason she lied is that she had come to believe in the God of the Israelites. Before the spies even arrived, she's already been thinking long and hard about all the buzz that's been going around about what this God has been doing. And she's decided, one, that their God is the true God. Two, that he is ruler of heaven above and earth below. Three, that his judgments on the wicked are devastating. Four, no one can stand up against him. Five, Rahab knew she didn't have a chance to survive unless somehow she could find mercy and grace at their hands and at the hands of their God. That was, she knew that that was her only hope. She also knew that turning the spies into the authorities would be thwarting God's purposes and she would rather be on his side than not on his side. So that has to factor in before we get all hung up on her lying about this. She had uh, been convinced that this was the true and living God and not someone to be trifled with. The next thing that you see her doing here is she asks for kindness for her family. Look at verses 12 to 14. She says, Now then, please swear to me by the Lord that you will show kindness to my family because I have shown kindness to you. Give me a sure sign that you will spare the lives of my father and mother, my brothers and sisters and all who belong to them and that you will save us 
from death. Interesting. Rather than asking them to take her with them right away, um, she thinks first of saving her family. I thought that was noble. Sometimes wicked people can do some noble things, right? Rahab knows here that her only hope is to cast herself on their mercy and grace and then trust them to spare her and spare her family when they come to take the city. And so the soldiers make this promise to her. Verse 14, our lives for your lives, the men assured her. If you don't tell what we are doing, we will be we will treat you kindly and faithfully when the Lord gives us this land. So it's agreed. In the next verses, she actually helps the spies to escape. Verse 15, so she lets them down by a cord through a window for the house she lived in was part of the city wall. Now she had said to them, go to the hills so the pursuers will not find you. Hide yourselves there three days until they return and then go on your way. But just before these guys take off for the hills, they let her know the conditions of her rescue. Excuse me just a second. Verse 17. The men said to her, this oath you made us swear will not be binding on us unless when we enter the land you have tied the scarlet cord in the window through which you let us down and unless you have brought your father and mother your brothers and all your family into your house if anyone goes outside your house into the street his blood will be on his own head we will not be responsible as for anyone who is in the house with you his blood will be on our head if a hand is laid on him but if you tell what we are doing, we will be released from the oath you made us swear. Agreed, she replied. Let it be as you say. So she sent them away, and they departed, and she tied the scarlet cord in the window. The conditions for her rescue are tie the scarlet cord in the window bring your family into the house where the scarlet cord is, stay in the house and wait for your rescue. In other words, don't go trying to escape on your own. If this scarlet cord was missing, if they didn't see it, none of her help to the spies would have done her any good. The cord had to be there if she was going to be saved. So, Trusting that they would return for her, she ties this red cord in the window where the soldiers would be able to see it. Now later on, when the city was taken, Rahab received the reward for her faith. She and all of her family were preserved. And we'll get into that in just a little bit. Chapter 6, verse 25 gives an overview. But Joshua spared Rahab the prostitute with her family and all who belonged to her. Because she hid the men Joshua had sent as spies to Jericho, and she lives among the Israelites to this day. So that's her story. That's about as far as it goes. Let's take a look then at some of the truths behind, the truths that we get from the story of Rahab. We find here in this passage truths about whom God saves by his grace, 
how he saves by grace and even how completely he saves by grace. And I want to walk us through those. First of all, lesson here on whom God saves by grace. And the first obvious answer to that is he saves a sinner. Rahab was a sinner, uh, and as a prostitute, she was probably a lot worse than a lot of the others in Jericho. She made a profit by actively violating the sacred oath that people take in marriage. Her business was helping men to commit a sin that was one of the most personal, one of the most damaging, one of the most betraying of all sins. And yet God chose to have mercy on her and even to shed his grace on her. God could have chosen the best of the citizens of Jericho. If I was choosing a team, I would do that, choose the best. He didn't do that. He chose someone who had absolutely no claim to her own righteousness so that he could display his pure grace. Simple as that. In the Bible, grace is undeserved, unmerited, demerited favor. You get something that you don't deserve even though you've done something to deserve the opposite of it. Undeserved, unmerited, demerited favor. And just as Rahab is saved by grace, she's actually a picture of us as sinners in need of salvation by grace. And just like ours, hers, our salvation has to be by grace because we are undeserving. We have demerits. We have sinned. The second answer to the question of whom God saves is that he saves not just a sinner, but he saves a helpless sinner. Take a look at this. Rahab knew that she was doomed unless God had mercy on her. She was trembling like everybody else in fear and helplessness long before the walls began to shake. That was her state. And even for us, the first step of salvation from judgment is seeing our sin and the gravity of it, seeing our need and recognizing our helplessness to do anything about that need in ourselves. No one can be saved until they first realize that they are a helpless sinner before God. Not helpless in every way, but helpless to save yourself. To save yourself would take a perfect righteousness and that's from the day you breathe your first breath to the day you gasp your last. Absolute 100% holy track record if it was going to be you that had something to do with your salvation. Good luck with that, huh? Man. Romans 3.23 says, All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And 1 John 1.8 says, if we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. So you just can't claim that, that I think I'm going to be okay because I'm not as bad as the next guy. Are you as good as the best guy? One who never sinned? No. So you have no hope. So 
The people God saves to answer that are people who recognize their spiritual bankruptcy and who have no hope of saving themselves. Another thing we see in her story is how God saves by grace. What was the one thing that the spies needed to see when they returned for Rahab? It's okay to talk in church. The cord, the scarlet cord, absolutely. Not Rahab's good works, not her changed life, not her promise to do better, but the scarlet cord in the window. Without that cord tied to the window, Rahab had no hope of being saved. That was the one thing and the only way for her to be saved. And you know, the Bible is really full of stories that preview this very thing, that give us these preview pictures of this one way of salvation. Even way back in the first few chapters of Genesis, in Genesis chapter 3, it becomes very clear that God is not going to allow humans to devise their own plans for salvation. You think of the story of Adam and Eve after they sinned. What did they do? They sowed fig leaves to try to cover their shame. That didn't work because they still hid when God came on the scene. It didn't work. What God does is he rejects those and he kills an animal, sheds its blood, and then covers them with the result of that sacrifice. Their shame gets covered because of the blood shed by an innocent animal. You could say that that animal's blood or its death in their place gave them a covering for their sin. Right after that, Genesis chapter 4, it's followed by the story of Cain and Abel and shows us that there's only one offering that God accepts. Cain thought he'd come to God with the fruits of his labors, some veggies, and offered those. God rejected Cain and his offering. Abel comes. He kills an animal, one of the firstlings from his flock, shed his, its blood. God accepts that offering and accepts Abel because of the shed blood of that offering. And he is making it very clear, even way back then, that there is only one way to approach God, and that is through the shed blood of a substitute. The same principle comes, comes out later in the book of Exodus where God shows that there's only one plan for salvation. And that, this is actually the closest parallel to the story of Rahab. It's the story of the Passover. The angel of death was going to go through Egypt and kill all of the firstborn. And uh, whether they were Israelite or Egyptian, if you, uh, you, your firstborn would come unto judgment with this. Any household, though, that wanted to be saved from that judgment had to sacrifice a lamb and paint its blood over the door on the outside of their house. And the promise was, when I see the blood, when the angel of death comes through, sees the blood, if I see that blood, I will pass over you. And that's where we get the name Passover. When I see the blood, I will pass over you. The angel of death was looking for red blood over the doors, which would show that the family inside had actually believed God's word and the lamb's sacrifice 
was what they were trusting in to save them. The whole family just had to sit there and wait. And God had done that. Applying the blood of the lamb was the key there. Now back to Rahab. The cord in Rahab's window wasn't blue, wasn't green, wasn't yellow. It was red. Now for Rahab, that might not have meant a whole lot, the color. But for us, knowing this scarlet thread that goes through the whole redemptive story, it's very significant. It's the color that symbolizes lifeblood, and it represents a sacrifice. And there is a picture painted here for us. Just as the Passover judgment um, allowed the people to go free, because they trusted in the blood, the d- blood on above the door would be their salvation. Just as Rahab had to trust God's plan for deliverance and the scarlet cord in the window w- was her hope, so we have to trust not in our own plans, but in God's plan, the shed blood of Christ for our salvation, that we trust that it is sufficient. There was no other plan for these people, no other option, and just like that, no other option for us. No other plan. That doesn't go over real big today in our um, personal truth society. You have your own personal truth, and you do your truth, and I'll do my truth, even though they're direct opposites. Today, so many people who actually believe that there is a God and thinks that, think that there's a heaven, think that it doesn't matter which road you take to get to heaven as long as you are sincere. They think that you can choose your own adventure and kind of make it on your own. But God has never said even once that there are multiple ways to be saved. If you've ever found one, come, instruct me. It's not there. When Jesus arrived here on earth, he cleared up any misconceptions that people might have had about multiple ways to heaven. He said in John 14, 6, I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. There is no way that you can step away from that and have it not even mean what it says. And in Acts chapter 4 verse 12 it said that there is no other name under heaven that has been given to men whereby we must be saved. There's only one name, the name of Jesus, that saves us. There have never been optional roads that lead to heaven, lead to salvation. We have to come God's way or it doesn't work. If that's not clear enough, it it clears up even more in Hebrews 9.22. It says, without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness for sins. Period. You might be free to choose your own adventure if you want to, free to maybe find your own path, But the Bible is so clear that the path that we construct will not get us there. Proverbs 16.25 says, There is a way that seems right to a man, but in the end, it leads to death. You can be totally convinced that you have chosen the right adventure to get you to heaven. But in the end, if it is not the right adventure, it will not work. 
It's not real popular to say today. But the truth is that the world is under judgment just as the city of Jericho was. People should be trembling about that. But so many of us have convinced ourselves that God really doesn't care that much. And you're, you're not getting that from your Bible, that's for sure. But people should be trembling, actually. And just as there was only one way out of judgment in Rahab's day, there is only one way out of judgment today, and that is through our trust in the substitutionary blood atonement that happened at Calvary with a perfect, unblemished Savior. His lifeblood was shed to pay my debt and your debt. And trusting in that is that step that puts you in to the kingdom of God. It forgives your sins. There is no other way to find that. Jesus is God's only, and I'm repeating some of this, his only provision for our salvation, just like that scarlet cord was the only provision for Rahab and her family. And it is as we trust in the work that God has done for us through Jesus' sacrifice that we are delivered from the judgment that we deserve. Amazing. God sees when we put our trust in Christ, he sees that indelible, maybe invisible mark, but it is the scarlet blood of Jesus that covers us and saves us. When he looks at us, he passes over the judgment because he sees the blood of Jesus that has been painted (laughs) on our hearts or however you want to put that. So, Another important thing, though, in Rahab's story, it's not over then. Um, God didn't just save her by grace from judgment, that judgment that he was bringing on Jericho. He kept on shedding grace on her throughout her life. And so we also learn from the extended story of Rahab how completely God saves by grace. Rahab wasn't just rescued from death, but she was given a new nation and a permanent home among the Israelites. She was adopted into the family of God and allowed to live under Jehovah's protection for the rest of her life. Chapter 6, verse 25 says, But Rahab the prostitute he saved alive, and she dwells in Israel to this day. But wait, there's more. Uh, Rahab was also given a position in the lineage of that one Savior that was to come into the world. In Matthew's Gospel, we see that she became the mother of Boaz and the great-grandmother of King David, directly in the line, the genealogical line of the Messiah. She's uh, mentioned in James 2.25 as an example of faith, and she's also been given a place along with a lot of other what we call faith heroes in the Hebrews Hall of Faith, chapter 11. She is mentioned there for her faith. So the one who starts out being a prostitute ends up being a beautiful poster girl for grace. Amazing. So how do we 
look at the story of Rahab, you can get all hung up on how unworthy she was, a lying pagan prostitute. But if we do that, if we stop there, we miss God's intention in displaying her story to us. He wasn't displaying her. He was displaying his grace. And she becomes a beautiful example of how wide the gap is between what we deserve and what we get because of God's grace. Paul talks about it in, I didn't plan on this, uh, but uh, Ephesians chapter 2 starts out with us being dead in our transgressions and sins and then shows how through faith God saves us and makes us part of his family and then raises us up into the heavenly places and seats us together with Christ. The gap of being so deep in the sinner bucket to being raised to that exalted place in God's family right next to Christ is the measure of God's grace. It says that he did this so that in the ages to come, the powers and authorities would see the measure of his grace. That's why he did it. He's displaying his grace. And as we see the grace that's given to Rahab, all of those undeserved provisions and protections, promises that were given to her, it should remind us of the beauty of what we get as undeserving sinners and remind us that we're saved by that same amazing grace, the shed blood of Jesus. I'm going to leave it right there. We're going to Uh, That'll be the story of Rahab. We're going to share communion together. Um, Jason's going to come up. We're going to spend some time responding in worship. Um, We're going to be thinking and singing about the grace that's been shown to us, huh? And as we do that, go ahead. That went much better. (laughs) We also have opportunity, we're going to respond in worship to this great truth, and we're also going to give opportunity for you to respond by uh, taking communion um, anytime during these songs. Um, And as you take communion this time, here's an interesting thought the scarlet thread that goes all the way through the Bible continues to be put in front of us every time we take communion. When you take that cracker and you dip it in the wine or the juice, that wine represents the shed blood of our perfect Savior. So as you take communion today, kind of tie that in with what God has said all along. What can take away my sin? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for our salvation. Jesus, we thank you for being our scarlet cord, the only one that we can cling to in confidence. Thank you for being our Passover lamb whose blood delivers us from coming judgment. Thank you for being our covering like the coats of skin were for Adam and Eve. By grace, we can stand before you unashamed only because you took our shame 
on the cross. You were stricken so we could be saved. You were wounded for our transgressions. By your stripes we've been healed and by your power we're kept forever. We stand in awe at that amazing grace. Amen. And could you stand as we worship together?